And Caesar for singing for us. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> it's been a wonderful time of worship already. I don't even need to be up here, but I worked so hard on this darn thing. I think I'm going to get up here and give it anyways. <laughs> uh, man, it's so good to be in worship uh, together today. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Pastor Johnny, and I serve uh, as one of your pastors here at First Methodist. Uh, it's just such a good time to be here. I'm, I'm so blessed uh, to be so. And uh, thankful, uh, Mike, uh, who normally preaches this service, is over in Israel right now, with, along with Pastor David, some of our staff, and many members of the church. So I know many of you have been keeping up with them uh, on Facebook and seeing all the wonderful pictures. And I know many of them are there for the first time, having the time of their lives, something they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. Uh, so I'm honored to get to come and share with you today while they're there. And we continue to pray for their safe travels um, as they are gallivanting around the other side of the world and uh, they come back to us safely with many stories uh, to tell us. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, as David read for us earlier uh, so well. Thank you, David. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. So if you brought your Bibles with you, we're going to continue to look at that, so please turn there. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Uh, you'll also see on the screen a couple other scripture references, one in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4. These are uh, similar accounts of the same story. Uh, so what we want to do, if you are here and you consider yourself a power user of the Bible, right, uh, then you can look up all three of those. Use your fingers as kind of like bookmarks, uh, and you can toss back and forth, because we are going to make references to the others. And so I would love for you to be able to kind of look and compare uh, between, these three, uh, between these three accounts of Jesus in the wilderness. This is a great advantage of actually bringing your Bible with you. I wasn't a believer of that for the longest period of time. I used to say, I have my phone that has a Bible on it in my pocket. Why would I bring this dusty old thing to church? Uh, but now, a former skeptic, now a believer. It's so much easier, uh, less cumbersome uh, when you have your Bible with you uh, to be able to flip back and forth between uh, several different verses. Um, so, I hope you did, and if you didn't, uh, bring it next week. I'm sure Mike will be all over the place, and, and you can uh, have your Bible ready to, to skip all over with him. Today, we're beginning a brand new series that's going to carry us for the next few weeks uh, into Easter. Uh, we're calling it the 40-Day Challenge. It's our second super series that we've done uh, here at the church, and one we've been looking forward to for a very long time. Now, it's called a super series because uh, alongside these weekend messages uh, that we'll be giving each week. There are some video teachings and there is a workbook uh, designed to go along with your small group or your Sunday school class uh, so that you as a group uh, can engage the material, can engage the content in a deep uh, and meaningful way together. So uh, if you have yet to get your workbook as part of your Sunday school class or if you want to join a small group and you have yet to do that, we can help you with those things immediately following the service out in the atrium. But as we begin this series today, uh, the 40-day challenge, I want to begin by drawing our attention to the significance of the number 40. There's nothing magical about this number. I'm pretty sure it's not God's lucky number. It may be. I don't know. Uh, but we do know that the number 40 does occur time and time again throughout our scriptures. So it's worth paying attention to. When Noah finished building the ark, for example, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses lived for 40 years in Egypt, then for another 40 years in the desert before being called by God to lead his people out of slavery, proving once and for all that it's never too late to change your career. It's never too late to follow your dreams or to follow God's calling. 
When God gives the law to Moses, he does so over the course of 40 days and nights that they spend together on the top of Mount Sinai. This, by the way, happens twice. Uh, Exodus 24, Exodus 34. And when the spies return from scouting the promised land to report back on the strength of the inhabitants there, the Israelites shrank back in fear, even though God promised the land to them and God promised to be with them uh, when they go there. And because of that fear, the Israelites spend the next 40 years wandering around in the desert in preparation for their eventual entry. And by the way, the amount of time that the spies spent gathering this information in the promised land? 40 days! Wonderful! That's great. Sticker for somebody after service. When Jonah finally accepts God's call to go to Nineveh and preach there, he tells the Ninevites that they have 40 days to their coming destruction, which leads this incredibly violent nation to have a radical change of heart. The prophet Ezekiel lays on his right side for 40 days to represent and to protest Israel's sin. The prophet Elijah went 40 days in the wilderness without food and water before he meets with God on the top of Mount Horeb. And even though this isn't in the scriptures, today, Pastor Sharon, who many of you know, is celebrating her 40th wedding anniversary with her husband, Ron. (laughs) The number 40 has tremendous significance throughout our scriptures, and it represents a time of testing of transition, of preparation, and of change. The number 40 also means an extended period of time because there are other numbers that are repeated throughout Scripture. The number 3, the number 7 are used often, but 40, if I'm doing my math right, is a little larger than those numbers. And it means it's a a full amount of time. You might say that that 40 represents a, a comprehensive or thorough amount of time. But in each of these instances, 40 days or 40 years represents an opportunity for a new beginning and for renewal. And when we get to the Gospels, as Jesus prepares to begin his public ministry, he is first baptized in the Jordan River, and then we read that he spends the next 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. The way that Matthew tells the story, that these are the first two acts of Jesus as an adult before he goes into his public ministry, which means they have great significance for the success of his ministry. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of our time today. This story of Jesus in the wilderness, as we mentioned earlier, is captured in three of our four Gospels. The Gospel of John doesn't mention it, but John does a lot of his own thing anyway, so we're not really sure what John John is doing and why he didn't include this story. But the other three do. But they also include it in very different ways. Mark, for example, uh, spends very little time on this. Uh, The whole baptism and the wilderness scene is encapsulated in four or five verses there in chapter one. It's really quick. The wilderness scene is two verses in and of itself. If you're a fan of the Star Wars movies like I am, I'm a giant nerd, uh, Mark treats this as like the yellow text at the beginning of the, the movie, right? That's kind of going up and it's, it's telling you important information, but not really where Mark wants to spend the majority of his time in the, in the telling of the story. Things you need to know, but he doesn't want to describe in depth. But both Matthew and Luke really want to expand on this story because for these two gospel writers, the actual goings-on in the wilderness are of great significance and tell us a lot about the importance of this time that Jesus spent there. 
So as you have your Bible and you're looking there uh, at chapter 4, I want to set this scene for you just a little bit first. Uh, we get to chapter 4 by way of this person named John, who is out in the wilderness, dressed in crazy clothes and eating bugs, right? And he's baptizing people out there. This is how he gets his name, John the Baptist. But while he's doing that, he's also preaching of this one, this Savior, this Messiah, who will come to be God's saving presence in the world and what do you know about that time? Jesus shows up. And when all the people there are being baptized, Jesus comes and asks to be baptized as well. And so John baptizes Jesus. Jesus goes under the water, and as soon as he comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God, like a dove, descends and alights on him. Alights, just a way of saying landed. So the Spirit of God came out like a dove. And landed on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In this moment, Jesus is claimed by God as God's son. And commissioned to be God's presence in the world. This is very important in this moment. Because we hear as the prophecies have told and as, um, as the angel visits Mary and Joseph that you will have a son. We will call him Emmanuel, God with us. You will name him Jesus, which means God saves. So he's going to be God's saving presence. But in this moment, as Jesus as an adult comes to participate in this ritual, in this rite of baptism, and the heavens open up and declare there in front of everyone, this is my son. I love him, and I am pleased with him. So there's where we pick up the story. Jesus Jesus has been baptized, he's been claimed and commissioned, he's ready to begin his ministry, to fulfill his call as being God's saving presence in the world. And then the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. So he goes from this major moment of baptism and then out to be by himself in the wilderness where he meets the devil. And there the devil tempts him with many things. He's been fasting for 40 days and nights. It's hot, you know, I'm sure he was hungry. And so the devil tempts him with comfort. The devil tempts him with safety there uh, to take him at the top of the temple and throw yourself off and you will be saved. Maybe alluding to the, the later danger that he would face and the opposition he would face uh, with the religious leaders of that time. He also takes Jesus to the top of a mountain and says, look out over all of this stuff. I can give it all to you. It can all be yours. But you have to bow down and worship me instead. You have to do things my way instead. But I can give it all to you. Look at it. In almost every story of a great hero, there's a test that must be passed before the hero's adventure can begin. Before the hero can step into his or her calling. Before they can fulfill their life's work and mission. And such is the case with Jesus as well. Before he could begin his public ministry, Jesus felt the Holy Spirit leading him into the wilderness. Away from the crowds away from the cities, away from the normalcy of life, away from his routines, away from the fertile Jordan Valley, and out into the solitude of the harsh and the barren desert. And by recounting this story of Jesus fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, Matthew and the other gospel writers, I think, are inviting us to remember the other instances of 40, those other time spans throughout Scripture, these periods of trial and of testing and of preparation. 
Especially that of Moses, who spent those 40 years out in the wilderness before encountering God in the burning bush. And later, the 40 years spent in the wilderness with the newly liberated Hebrew slaves who were tested in that wilderness before they were prepared, before they were prepared to enter into the promised land. The gospel writers are trying to present Jesus and his journey of faith and mission to the world as mirroring the experience of God's people throughout history. But this time of testing in the wilderness was not a testing of Jesus' own physical strength, right? It wasn't this boot camp that Jesus had to go to because they knew the ministry was going to be rough and it was going to be long and he was going to need his endurance and he was going to need to be strong. Instead, it was a spiritual battle that was waged within Jesus. Both Matthew and Luke uh, vividly describe an encounter with the devil, the accuser, the tempter, the deceiver. Now, a common mistake I used to make reading this, uh, this passage of Scripture, and one that you uh, may make as well, is that when I read this, I imagine that it's only Jesus and the devil kind of locked in this spiritual arm wrestling match to see who was stronger, right? To see who would win out eventually. But if we look back in chapter 3, uh, verse 16 of Matthew, we see that the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and then leading him into the wilderness. The Spirit of God did not shove Jesus in the wilderness and say, good luck, watch out for the devil in there. I hear sometimes he looks like a snake, I don't know. Instead, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. If you flip over, power users, to uh, Luke chapter 4, and you look there, how Luke begins this story of the wilderness. Luke says this, that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So when Jesus goes into the wilderness, he does not go on his own, even though he's there in solitude. There are no other people around. Jesus is not by himself. He comes with this very real divine presence that filled him at his baptism and led him into the wilderness. It is with him as he uh, encounters this other voice, this other presence, this opposing presence that is there. At his baptism, Jesus encounters the Holy Spirit with a voice that accompanies it and says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The voice from heaven says, This is my Son. That presence goes with him as he goes into the wilderness and encounters the devil, whose first words are, If you are the Son of God. This first voice who affirms very clearly, You are the Son of God. The second voice who asks Jesus to doubt that very identity, cast doubt on his identity, questions whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God or called by God at all, a voice that invites Jesus to doubt God's will and purpose for his life, a voice that encourages Jesus to even abandon that call, to abandon his mission, and to exploit his power and his influence for his own good only, a voice that even uses Scripture to justify its claims, and to persuade Jesus to listen. I believe this is a critical encounter for Jesus and for his upcoming ministry to the world. See, in the wilderness, Jesus needed to meet this other voice, needed to face this other voice head on that would no doubt be lurking in the background of his ministry 
that would be following him around in and throughout that ministry. He needed to, to face it not only so that he could recognize it when, it when and if it ever came back, but also so that he could recognize it as opposed to this other voice that affirmed his calling, that affirmed him as the Son of God, so that he could know which was which and he could choose which one he would follow. Which one was going to direct his life? Which one was Jesus going to listen to? Was he going to trust the first voice or was he going to trust the second? Jesus needed this time of preparation in the wilderness so that he could get his mission clear. So he could focus himself not only in his head but also in his heart. So that he wouldn't be captivated by the adoring fans as they came and heard him preach these amazing sermons and as he taught these wonderful lessons to the masses, as he would heal the blind and the sick and the paralyzed, as he would feed the hungry, no doubt there would be many people that would be gathered and not know of God, not know the work of God and place all their trust in the humanness of Jesus. That would be hard for anyone to face. But also, he needed to be clear about his mission in his heart and in his head so that he wouldn't be intimidated by the threats of those who opposed him. The, the venomous criticism that would accompany those that disagreed with him and the punishment that he could face and would eventually face because of the power that those people held. It was criti critical for Jesus. The clarity of mission that Jesus discovered there in the wilderness was essential to the success of his ministry and the fulfillment of his calling. That time that Jesus spent in the wilderness, he, he gained a clarity of mission that was essential to his success in his ministry and in his, uh, in his calling. Jesus had to hear both of these voices because he had to determine, was it going to be his own will or was it going to be God's will that would be done? I think maybe this is why we see Jesus returning to the wilderness, returning to these places of solitude again and again throughout his ministry. And it's often after these times of really big ministry. If you read throughout the Gospels, you'll find stories of Jesus healing multitudes of people, healing the blind, healing the sick, healing the paralyzed. And often he would retreat to these lonely places away from the crowds to be alone and to be in prayer. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find Jesus as he's feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, immediately following this huge event. And this was a huge event because we're talking about a time when poverty was rampant and food security did not exist. So not only to have abundant food, but also to share that abundant food with people was unheard of. And after Jesus does this, he sends the disciples along, says he'll catch up later, but he goes off on his own to pray. I wonder, though these moments of solitude, other than the wilderness and other than another one that we'll mention later, these moments of solitude where Jesus goes off by himself to pray are not detailed, what Jesus prays about, what, what he's doing there, but I wonder, I wonder if Jesus wasn't wrestling with these old temptations again. I, wasn't, I wonder if Jesus wasn't going off to refocus and, 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 and clarify again this mission that he had. To deal and wrestle with that voice inside that might be leading him away 
toward his own purposes rather than God's purposes. I wonder. At the very minimum, it seems that Jesus recognizes within himself the necessity of disrupting his routine in order to be alone with God and to seek the Holy Spirit so that God's will remains primary in his life and his mission to the world remains clear and focused. I do think all of this, the wilderness and these moments of solitude that are undetailed, do lead up to this final moment of solitude that we find in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells them, quote, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. And to stay and keep watch while he goes off by himself to pray for a moment. And as soon as Jesus goes and finds a spot alone, he falls on his face and he prays to God, Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. The way we would pray that today is, God, I'm terrified. I feel you leading me in this direction and I know what could happen. I know what is going to happen. And I don't want to do that. I can think of other ways that will keep me safe and keep me comfortable. And I could still kind of do your will, God. I think I, I think I can accomplish some things. I have some other ideas if you'll let me do it my way. But I'm scared. But Jesus closes that prayer with, yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, in this moment of solitude and in prayer, we see Jesus separating himself, uh, refocusing on, on the Spirit and on that voice that has called him to be God's saving presence in the world and casting out that doubt and casting out that fear that has come uh, to, to influence him as well and saying, God, I am scared and God, I do want to do it a different way, but I have committed to you and it is going to be your will and not mine. It is going to be your will and not mine. In the early years of the church, as Christians prepared to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter, they latched on to this idea of having a 40-day period of testing and of trial leading up to that celebration. This is a period that we call the season of Lent. And in the earliest expressions of Lent, the 40-day period leading up to Easter was a time for brand new followers of Christ to pray and to prepare for their baptism that they would experience at Easter. And for the lifelong commitment that they were making to put God's will first in their life. It was also a special time for penitents. Those who had lived an extended amount of time outside of God's will and away from God. That were longing to recommit themselves to God and to rededicate themselves as a follower of Christ. This too was a time of self-examination and of recommitment and of prayer and of preparation and of inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to them. Here's what that means for us. That observing Lent's. Observing Lent is about establishing a window of time, 40 days, in which we intentionally dedicate ourselves to prayer and to reflection in order to better know God's will for our lives. In other words, Lent is not to test the strength of our will, but to rediscover God's will. Lent is not to test the strength of our will, but to rediscover God's will. This means that uh, when I approach Lent and I'm trying to decide, what is the thing I'm going to give up this year? Do I give up soda? Do I give up chocolate? Do I give up Facebook? Do I give up fast food? 
I don't do these things just to see if I can do it, right? This isn't just a challenge for myself. This isn't a test of my willpower. This isn't a competition with myself or with others that have made uh, the same commitment. Instead, what we're trying to accomplish here by giving things up, even some of the smaller things of our life, what we're trying to accomplish here is a disruption of our everyday lives, a break in our routine, in the normalcy of our lives, a breaking of our, uh, our habits. We're trying to shake things up so that we can create space for us to meet God and wrestle with the parts of us that have yet to submit to God's will. The parts of us that still doubt, the parts of us that aren't quite willing to say yet, your will, God, in all things, let it be your will and not our own. To find and recognize that voice inside us that promises the entire world, that promises comfort, that promises safety, but only apart from God. This brings me to the last thing that I think is really important for us to notice in this story today. There, there are a thousand things uh, in the story of Jesus in the wilderness that we could point out and that we could talk about. I could spend three hours up here, but it's Valentine's Day and you don't want, to, you don't want any part of that. So what, well, the last thing I really want to draw to our attention, it's a really important thing to notice, and it's really more of a question that I have about this story, is the last thing that the devil promises Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. In Luke, it's the second thing that the, that the devil promises. But the last thing that he promises is that if Jesus were, would just bow down and worship him, if Jesus would choose the devil over God, if Jesus would at least abandon God's way, that all of this, all authority of the kingdoms and all of their splendor could be his. It could be his. But what the devil is saying is that you can't do it God's way, though. The only way you're going to get that is if I give it to you, because I have it. If you fast forward in the gospel to the very end, Matthew uh, chapter 28, Jesus has been crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. And as he is ascending into heaven, he is giving his final instructions to the disciples as they go forth to make disciples in all of the world, to begin the church, and to spread the love and the good news of Christ throughout the world. The last thing that Jesus says to him, those last instructions, he begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. This is the thing that the devil promised him, right? And yet Jesus ignored that voice, followed God's way, even unto death. And as he is ascending into heaven, has said, all authority has been given to me. Which makes me wonder, was the devil even capable of giving all authority to Jesus in the first place? Was the devil capable of delivering on any of the promises that he made? Remember, we're talking about the tempter, the deceiver. Was the devil even capable of giving, I mean, whose world is this anyways? This is God's world. This isn't the devil's world. Remember all that the, the accuser and the tempter promised in the garden. Did that come to pass? No. Was the devil even capable of giving this? Or would Jesus, had he agreed to follow the devil, to worship the devil instead, to do it his way instead of God's way. Had Jesus agreed to that, would he have spent his entire life chasing these promises that would never be fulfilled? 
Would he spend his entire life grabbing after that carrot that's just dangling in front of him that was promised to him? All the while moving away from this fullness of life and from this mission that God had called him to. But instead, Jesus heard the deceiving voice. He recognized it and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for I will worship God and serve him only. I wonder for us what, what that thing might be. I, I would say that for the majority of us here, most of us, that we've spent a large part of our lives, if not most of our lives, uh, earnestly seeking God and wanting to live out the example of Christ in our everyday life. And day after day and year after year, more and more of us has been surrendered over to God, submitted to God, and lived as God has called us to live. Heck, you're already doing that now. You've surrendered this time, and you're here in church. So, so I know that this is happening uh, for us. But I would also venture a guess that not any of us in here are perfect, or at least not most of us. And that there's still parts of our life or a part of our life that we have yet to fully surrender. That we've yet to fully give. We have the areas where we've said, yes, God, I've said yes to you. And that means I'm going to do this differently. That means I'm going to add these other things to my life. Times of service and times of prayer and times of study in your word. Things I wouldn't have done before, but I'm going to do those now. Yes, God, you can have this part of me too. I didn't want to give this one up at first. This one was hard. But you can have it. I know that I can trust you here. But I, I don't know about this thing. I don't know about this one yet. God, I know what you're going to ask me to do with this. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know that if I, if I quite trust God, if, if I give this to you, because I really like it the way it is now. I really like this thing, and I'm not sure I want to give it to you. And I know you're asking for it. I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to do with it. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to keep this one for me. I wonder what that might be for each of us. And I would also venture to say we probably don't know. Many of us don't know because we live the tyranny of our, of our schedules each and every day. Every day we have our tasks, we have our to-dos. Many of us, we have kids we got to drop off at school. you got grandkids you got to watch while parents are working. You have, you have chores and, and you have errands to run and, and you're in church and you're, and you're reading your Bible. And it, our day goes on and on and on when there's not a lot of time for self-reflection. And Lent is that time for us. That's our invitation for not only today but for the next 40 days is that we follow Jesus into the wilderness, that we disrupt the normalcy of our lives, that we shake things up in a way that leaves room for God to speak into our lives and for the Holy Spirit to shine a light on those places that we have kept hidden, the places that we have not quite submitted to God yet, the places that we're not quite willing to give to God yet. We ask the Holy Spirit in this time of preparation, in this time of testing, to show us, reveal to us those sides of us that we haven't given yet. And then inspire us and fill us and empower us, God, to give those over fully. Throughout our time in the wilderness, as we learn to put aside our own plans and submit to God's, then I think we may be granted the clarity of vision and mission and the calling that God has for us 
the things that God has in store for us, the fullness of life that God has in store for us, and that in that we can catch a glimpse of a reality that is so much greater than our own, and that we can hear this voice from heaven that affirms us not only as God's children, but equips us with the Spirit to fulfill our calling as, that, as those children. This is an essential practice of our faith, but it is a challenge It comes around year after year. And so this year, the invitation, the challenge, is that we spend the next 40 days, the next six weeks together, venturing with Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and tried and to prepare to continue to live out the fullness of life that Jesus promises. This is our challenge. And over the next couple weeks, when Pastor Mike comes back, he's going to tell you the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in chapter 3 of John, uh, we find uh, John the Baptist, uh, he has disciples as well because he's a great preacher and he's baptizing. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. He has disciples too. And when they hear about Jesus and the following that Jesus is having, they get a little worried for John. John, like you've built up this following. You've built up this ministry. And now they're all just going to go follow Jesus. What's going to happen to you? We love you. You're a great preacher. We don't want that to happen to you. And John the Baptist responds to them and says, he, meaning Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. John chapter 3, verse 30. And that's going to be our simple one verse uh, sort of thread that goes through each, uh, each of these weeks as we go forward in the wilderness. And, and uh, Pastor Mike's going to talk a lot, of more, a lot more about that next week. But we really wanted to start this week with Jesus and this foundational moment in the wilderness and what it means to be in the wilderness. And to see that Jesus struggled with those very same questions that we struggle with. So I hope you'll join us over the next few weeks in worship. Uh, as we continue to do this together, those of you in your small groups or in your Sunday school classes, as we seek to go deeper and in very meaningful ways into this, uh, into this content. As we close, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, you have called us your children. You have sent your Holy Spirit to comfort us, to inspire us, and to guide us. And we recognize that we have not always fully lived up to our calling that there are parts of us that we have hidden from you, that we have trusted more than you, that there's a presence in us that deceives us into trusting our way over yours, but we long for you, God, and we know your way is better, that all authority belongs to you, that full life comes only from you. Let us not simply know that truth, God, but let us believe it and trust it and live it. Today, God, as we accept this challenge to follow your Son into the wilderness, as many of our saints have done before, may we hear your voice above all others. Give us clarity of vision, focus of mission, and the endurance to follow through. And may we discover your will and submit ours to it. We thank you, God. Amen.